Well, amen, amen. Well, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles with you today, and I'm sure that you do, uh, would you please take them out and go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 is where we will be this morning. And I'm so excited to preach um, today because really there's a couple reasons I'm excited about preaching um, this morning. And number one, um, it's because of this. Um, My favorite college football team actually won. Yes, praise God, he is alive, he answered my prayers. I'm not used to waking up on Sunday morning celebrating the team that I love, and so anyways, the Texas Tech Red Raiders scratched one out, and I'll take it anyway. I just for once want to, I just want to know what it feels like to be an Alabama Crimson Tide fan, just once. Just once, but anyways. Um, the second reason why I am excited about preaching uh, this uh, morning, and there's going to be a little sarcasm in what I'm about to share with you, um, I'm excited because on Friday morning, my computer crashed. Everything gone. Today's message gone. Notes on the screen gone. I'm so glad that 2020 is almost over. Amen? I can't wait. I can't wait for 2020 to be over. But anyways, I really am excited about preaching from Daniel chapter 5, but I do want to let you know that um, uh, only the Scripture will be on the screen for you this morning. Um, No notes. And so if I think that I've said something pretty good, I will let you know and tell you to write that one down, okay? (laughs) I'm just going to let you know. But that's just where we are uh, this uh, morning. But uh, I really, really am excited. And if this is your first time with us uh, this morning, whether it's your first time in person or maybe you're joining us online through our website or through our uh, Facebook, man, thank you so much for choosing to to worship with us here at First Baptist Church Brunswick. You have joined us in the middle of our series on the book of Daniel, where we're talking about how God is in control. Um, And in uh, this uh, series, we're we're looking at this life of Daniel, who, who lived about 2,500 years ago, and at the age of 15 or 16, um, Daniel was, was taken captive to the Babylonian Empire, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, and he, along with about 25% uh, of the Jewish uh, nation, they were taken into captivity. But, but one of the great things about Daniel, and the reason we look at Daniel and um, uh, we, we study him, is because Daniel did something very important as he lived in the Babylon, or as he lived in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us this, that Daniel made up his mind to not defile himself. And here's the great thing about Daniel's decision, is that God honored that decision. Amen? All throughout the life of Daniel, God honored that decision um, as Daniel said, you know what, I'm not going to eat of the king's food, I'm not going to drink of the king's wine, I'm going to do it the way God wants me to do it. And so we've been looking at this uh, book, the first six chapters uh, tell stories, historical stories, minus chapter 2, which has some prophecy in it, Um, but then Daniel chapter 7 through 12 all deal with prophecy and what's going to happen in the future. Future. Well, we are in Daniel chapter 5 today, and we're looking at a historical event. Now, in the first four chapters of Daniel, Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4, we were introduced to the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And we've spent a great several weeks talking about him and how God used him and worked in his life. But today, in Daniel chapter 5, here's what we need to know. King Nebuchadnezzar has died. He's no longer on the scene. Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the greatest king of Babylon. He was the most famous. He was the most powerful. He reigned for over 45 years. But here in Daniel chapter 5, as we look at this chapter this morning, his grandson, Belshazzar, is the king. Now, we've never heard of Belshazzar up to this point. He just kind of jumps off the pages. We, we don't know, uh, uh, just reading the section, you don't know much about him, but then you have to do some research and find out about this man named Belshazzar. Well, who is this king, now the king of Babylon, that we'll be looking at in Daniel chapter 5? We need to know about this king because Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2 says this, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Is that not an important verse for the life of the United States today? Well, Babylon was groaning because of this wicked man named Belshazzar. He was a wicked ruler. And he actually, he was actually a very, very terrible leader. Out beside verse number one, I want you to write down three words. Uh, these are the three words that I've used to describe Belshazzar. And here are the words. You ready? Spoiled, rotten brat. That's Belshazzar. He is a spoiled, rotten brat. He's the grandson of the greatest king of Babylon. And all he liked to do was drink party with his friends, and show off his wealth. Well, I think the follow-up question to that description is this. How in the world did he become king? How did he become king? I ask that question because something you need to understand when you study the book of Daniel is this, that this king Belshazzar, for centuries, for centuries, scholars who are way more liberal than you and I ever will be, believe that Daniel made up this king. They believe that this was just a fictitious character. And just on another side note, for, for many, many years, there are several liberal scholars and theologians who, who have critiqued the dating of the writing of the book of Daniel. Many liberal theological scholars believe that Daniel was written way after all of the events of Daniel took place. Scholars, some the, uh, liberal scholars believe that somebody looked back in time to write the book and made all the pieces fit together. Now, on a side note for you this morning, I want you to know this, and I, I say this with all conviction of my heart, and I pray that you would have the same conviction as well. Whenever someone comes up with an error in God's Word, they are in error, not God's Word. I pray that that will be your conviction. Students, young people, I pray that will be your conviction because you're going to have to be the ones who carry that on. That there's no error in God's Word. If you find an error, the error is in your finite mind. Well, Back to Belshazzar. How does he become king? Well, after Nebuchadnezzar passes away, he dies, and then, just to make this really, really short, several murders later, 
Lo and behold, Belshazzar becomes the king. So if you were to look at Belshazzar's family lineage, it would be filled with drunks, murderers, and cocky people. This is every parent's dream husband for their daughter. And here in chapter 5, I want you to note this. Here in chapter 5, this is the last day of Belshazzar's life. As a matter of fact, this is the last day of the Babylonian kingdom. And when chapter 5 concludes at the end of verse 31, hopefully you will see and know and understand that when Belshazzar dies and the Babylonian kingdom is ended by the Medes and the, per- and the Persians, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies from Jeremiah, Isaiah, which are 175 years before this took place. And this is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and he saw the statue. The statue was a head of gold, that's Babylon, and then it turns into the silver, the arms of this statue. And here by the end of chapter 5, the prophecy has been fulfilled. This is an incredible, incredible chapter, and it is historically accurate. It is historically accurate. So here's a question for you, just what you know about Belshazzar, which I've shared with you briefly. Do you think this spoiled, rotten brat cares that this is his last day? Look at your neighbor and say, no, he does not. He does not care. He does not care that the Medes and the Persians have actually surrounded the city of Babylon and they have surrounded the city for four months. Does he care? No, he doesn't care. He's brash. He's cocky. He's irreverent. He's immoral. And I add this to it, he is an ignoramus. He has rejected the God most high. He is irreverent. We'll see his irreverence in just a moment. We'll see his immorality, and he is ignorant of the prophecies of God's Word. So what does this spoiled, rotten brat do when the going gets tough? He throws a party. He throws a party. Look with me in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and let's, let's draw some lessons from Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king, he held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, there's his party, and it's huge. It's huge. One thousand nobles are there. It is, it's the cream of the Babylonian society. They've been invited, and their wives have been invited, and their concubines. That's real comfortable, isn't it? This is, this is a huge party. Scholars will say that, that counting the waiters, the guards, and the various onlookers, the total crowd numbered well over 8,000 people at this party. Now, I want you to notice what this party is filled with. It is filled with women and wine. That's the party. Now, let me just take a sidestep right here and talk a little bit about this. Because in this party, you see the abuse of wine and the abuse of women. Now, we are growing up in a, or are living in an era when certain people believe 
that Christianity actually suppresses and oppresses women. You understand that, correct? And so the narrative in our culture today is that Christianity puts down women and does not allow them to come to the top. Can I just tell you that is 100% false. Every other religion does that. There's one religion, we're calling Christianity religion for this purpose of my argument. Does that make sense? Every other religion puts women down, suppresses them. Does Christianity make women wear a cloth over their face? We're scared to respond to that, aren't we? (laughs) I want you to know that Christianity is the only religion where everybody is on equal ground. Everybody is on level ground and is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, this is immorality at its finest. Look at verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, one translation bluntly put it, he got drunk. He gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 3, then they brought the gold vessel that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines, they all drank from them. Well, very quickly we see that not only is there immorality, now we see some irreverence. Because we're introduced into the gold and silver vessels. Do you see this? We see these goblets, if you will, these cups, if you will. Now, where did these vessels come from? Because in the previous four chapters, we have not heard of these, have we? And so we can assume that Nebuchadnezzar uh, did not even use these vessels. What are these vessels? These vessels are the cups and the utensils that came from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so if you know your history, 70 years prior to this moment, 70 years, we'll talk more about that later on in Daniel, 70 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar, he conquers Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, he gathers all of the utensils, the cups, the goblets, the gold, the silver, and he takes them back to Babylon and he stores them. And so in a drunken stupor, Belshazzar in his irreverence says, hey, I know of some gold cups that have never been used. Let's use them now. Now I want you to catch the picture here. This is irreverence at its finest because these utensils When they were created, they were created for a specific and holy purpose. Amen? These utensils, these utensils had been in the presence of God Himself. Now, I know that the utensils, this was, uh, they, uh, there was no life in those utensils, but the Spirit of God had surrounded those utensils. And they were created for a holy purpose. And here in verses 2, 3, and 4, these holy vessels are being used for an unholy purpose. Now, we could sit here and talk about that for a long time. Because did you know that you and I, we are the temple of God and we are created for holy purposes? But how often have we used them for unholy purposes? 
That's called irreverence. And so you see Belshazzar and all of the people here, and you can almost see them passing the cups from one person to another. And this is Belshazzar. He is thumbing his nose at God, and he is saying, he is saying to the Almighty God, you cannot protect me. As a matter of fact, my gods are bigger than your gods. Well, how do you think that's going to work out for him? Verse 4, they drank the wine, and look at this, and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In the margin of your Bible, I want you to write this, Romans chapter 1. This is Romans chapter 1. When people exchange the glory of God Almighty for the things that they have created themselves, this is Romans chapter 1. Well, well, this feast This irreverent, immoral feast that Belshazzar is throwing, scholars have actually said that this, this took place on a specific date. I want you to write this down. The specific date of this feast is October the 12th, 539 B.C. This is history. October the 12th, 539 B.C. This is 70 years after Daniel and the other Jewish teenagers have arrived from Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead, and now Daniel. Daniel is, he ranges between the age of 70 to 80 years old. Any 70 to 80-year-olds here this morning? Nobody. Good. That's great. So, well, at this point, Daniel is an old man. But notice this, who's not at the party? Who's not at the party? Daniel's not at the party. Well, why is Daniel not at the party? He's sleeping, he's old. I believe that Daniel's not at the party because of this. In their opinion, and I think this will hit us today, I believe that Daniel's not at this party because in their mind, Belshazzar and the irreverent and the immoral, they believe that Daniel is narrow-minded, a fundamental. Are you with me? Are you with me? I mean, who wants a narrow-minded, fundamental at a drunk fest? I mean, sooner or later, he's going to speak up. Well, here's a little application for this that I believe is important for us today. When the world throws a wild party, the children of God are not invited. Why? Because darkness runs from the light. Believers, as Christians... We don't fit in with the world. We don't fit in with the world. We do not fit in with the irreverent. We do not fit in with the immoral. And we do not fit in with the ignoramuses who reject God. We don't fit in with them. Pastor, that's pretty harsh, don't you think? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. 
Or you can lean over and look at the Bible next to you. Just don't breathe on that person. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verses 14 through 17, and look what Paul says as Paul's talking about what we as believers, what we are to look like and who we are to partner with. Look at this, verse 14. Um, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and this is what Paul writes. He says, do not be bound together with what? Unbelievers. Now he gives the reasons why. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's a God. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16, or what, are, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now look at what Paul says. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, now this is what Paul says about who lives with you, who lives inside of you, who, who is in you. He says, and this is God speaking, I will dwell where? In them. That means the power of the living God lives inside each and every believer in Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Father, Son, Holy Ghost lives inside every single believer. Not only does, the, does God live inside of you, I will dwell in them and I will what? I will walk with them, means God walks with you. And he says, and I will be their God. And then he says, and they shall be my people. Now look at verse 17, because this is is what's going on with Daniel. Therefore, come out from them and you be separate. Do you see that? As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to be separate. We're to be different. We're not to look like the world. We're to act differently. We're to speak differently. We're to live differently. We're to give differently. We're to love differently. Why? Because the power of the living God lives inside of us. And praise God that Daniel lived out this calling his entire life. Amen? And we can see the example of somebody living out this life of being fully committed to the holy God and committing their life to him and being separate. Wow, this is amazing. And here's what we know from the life of Daniel, that if you commit your life fully, completely, 100%, doing everything that God asks you to do, God is going to honor that decision and he's going to work on your behalf. Amen? Amen. Are you with me this morning? Look at verse 5. Because we've seen this immoral, irreverent party, and now God shows up. I mean, if you want to cause a drunk fest to run away, just have God show up. Here you go. Verse 5, and suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. That's pretty specific, isn't it? And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. As I read this text, I can't but help to think about the old TV show, The Addams Family. Are you with me? Sing! Remember the hand, they came, the Adams Family movie came out, but compares nothing to the old black and white thing. Well, I don't know if this was thing or not, 
But I know that this is not one of those giant foam fingers you see at the football games, right? It's not one of those saying we're number one. No, here's what happens. In the middle of this drunk fest, in the middle of irreverence, in the middle of immorality, a hand shows up and it starts writing on the wall. How many of you have ever heard the expression, the handwriting is on the wall? Guess where it came from? It comes from this story. It comes from this story that took place over 2,500 years ago. And anytime you use that phrase, the handwriting is on the wall, it comes from here, and this is what it means. Because this phrase, the handwriting on the wall, it simply means this, warning, something bad is about to happen. Isn't that correct? When you say the handwriting is on the wall, you know what? Well, I'm going to pack my bags because I know that I'm done here. That's what that means. And so the handwriting on the wall, In our text this morning, handwriting on the wall is the finger of God, the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments on stone, the same finger that divided the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through, the same finger that pointed at Jesus and said, rise from the dead, this same finger wrote on the wall. And it is a warning. Now, I believe this. I believe that this warning that God writes on the plastered wall in Babylon, I believe not only is it a warning or was a warning to Belshazzar and Babylon, I also believe that this is a warning to the nations who follow the route of Babylon. Let me be more specific, the United States of America. I'll get to that in just a moment. So this hand appears on the wall. And I find it amazing at how the brash Belshazzar, irreverent, immoral, cocky, probably the life of the party, As a matter of fact, I know that he was the life of the party because at the feast, he was raised up on a pedestal so everybody saw him drinking and having a good time, laughing, talking. It's amazing how the second God speaks, the second God speaks, he is brought to his knees. Turn over with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, please. Daniel and Revelation are so connected. In order to understand Revelation, you must first understand Daniel. But we see here the warning that God gives Belshazzar. God appears, and and we're going to see in our text that Belshazzar falls to his knees. He cannot stand and he cannot speak. Because God has given him a warning. Now look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. This is, uh, this is the end of times. This is when the seals of God, the seven seals are, 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 are released. And this is the sixth seal when terror comes upon the people. Verse 15, follow along please. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Look what they did, verse 16. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and look at this, and hide us from the presence of him 
who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You see, at the end of the book of Revelation, when the wrath of God comes, this is what the Bible says, you cannot stand on the righteous judgment of God. You will fall to your knees and you will be silent. And you will be struck down. And this is what happens. And this is exactly what happens. Now, at this point in this story, to the Jewish reader, now remember the Jewish people have been in exile for 70 years. They've been kicked out of their land because they've rejected God. They worship other idols. And they've been questioning, God, how can, we, how can you do this? What can you do, God? And here, when they read this story, at this point, all the Jewish people begin to celebrate. You know why? Because they see now that God's working on their behalf. Meaning that no matter what you're going through, no matter the difficult situation, if you are a son or a daughter of God, God is always working on your behalf. Now, it may take 70 years, but God's working. And at this point, they begin to celebrate. Well, look at verse 6. And the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. This is the world's quickest way to become sober. Write it down. He's seen a ghost. He can't stand up. Now, let me talk a little bit about the writing on the wall. This is very, I think this is important for us to understand. It gives us an idea of who God is. In ancient Middle East um, uh, rulership, uh, if you will, um, a king, if he wanted to make an edict, what he would do is he would take his finger or a pen, and he would write something on the tablet. And once the king made an edict, and he wrote it on the tablet, it could not be changed. Here next week, when we look at Daniel chapter 6, when we read of this new king of the Medes and the Persians, um, Darius or Darius, had different ways of pronouncing that name, when, when, when Darius puts, puts uh, Daniel in the lion's den because Darius made an edict that said, you cannot worship or bow to any other god except my own. Well, Daniel prays to God, and so because of the edict, Daniel's stone in the lion's den, but while Daniel's in the lion's den, uh, Darius says, man, I wished I could change this, but I can't. Because I've written it down. So in Middle Eastern rulership, and Middle Eastern kingship, if you wrote something down, you knew that it could not be changed. So when Belshazzar sees a hand writing something down, and we know that it is going to be an edict, Belshazzar all of a sudden knows, he says, this cannot be changed. Did you know, folks, that what God has said, it cannot be changed? It will not be changed, and it will come to fruition. Look at verse number 7. The king, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke up and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men and all the king's horses could not put Humpty back together again. <laughs> wise men came in. They could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. 
And Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Write this out in the margin of your Bible, out beside verse number 9. Write this, like father, like son. Like father, like son. Belshazzar learned his arrogance from somebody, and it's Nebuchadnezzar. You would think at this point, if you have followed along in our series, you, you would think that the leaders of Babylon would have learned their lesson by now. Isn't that right? you think they'd have learned. Why do they keep going back to these wise men, the conjurers, the magicians, the diviners? I mean, they couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, could they? They couldn't, they couldn't interpret it in Daniel chapter 4. So, so why is Belshazzar returning to these men again? I think the application is very personal for us. Because I find it remarkable, just like Belshazzar, that we are all creatures of habit, aren't we? Aren't we? Creatures of habit. I find it amazing that time and time again, when we return out of habit to those things that will not produce peace and will not produce happiness, rather they produce strife and discontent, And time and time and time again, we keep going back to the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the magicians and the diviners of our own lives out of habit. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 2, excuse me. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we read of... Jeremiah is writing about about Israel's apostasy and how they have turned from God. And I want you to listen to this because we see this in Belshazzar's life and at times we see it in our own lives as well. Look at verse number 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 of Jeremiah, looking in your copy of God's Word. Jeremiah says this, My people, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you get it? Do you see it? You see, time and time again, when we keep going back out of habit to that which does not produce happiness, to that which does, does not produce joy in our lives, that does not produce Christ-likeness in our lives, what we are doing is what Jeremiah chapter 2 says. We are going back to our own wells. We are digging up our own wells, and we're drinking from the dirty water that we have dug up ourselves. And you all know that the well that you have dug for yourself will never satisfy. You see, there's only one well that we are to drink from, and that is the well of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the living fountain, the spring of water, the living water through Him, when you drink from Him, that is when you and I are going to find true happiness, true peace, true joy, and that's when Christ will be magnified in your life when you drink from the well of Jesus Christ. Wow. Look at your neighbor and say, man, I'm thirsty for Jesus. Are you thirsty for Jesus? Man, are you thirsty for Jesus? Wow. Look at verse 10. 
Are y'all having a good time this morning? Y'all having a good time? Look at verse 10. Now somebody else enters into this banquet. The queen, uh uh-oh. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke, and she said, O king, live forever. Then look what she says. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. In the margin of verse 10, write this. Okay, thank you, queen. (laughs) What? Why, queen? Now, scholars will say that this queen, this is the widow of King Nebuchadnezzar. She knows something that Belshazzar does not know. Isn't that amazing? As a believer in Jesus Christ, not saying that she was, but she gives us an example that we can speak to people who are pale and their knees are shaking and we can go to them and say, you don't need to worry because I know something that you need to know. Wow, what is it? Look at verse 11. Man, I'm getting goosebumps right now. If I had hair on my head, it would be standing straight up. (laughs) Look at verse 11 and circle these first four words. There is a man. There is a man. There's a solution, king. There's a solution to the situation. And and, and king, I know him. I know who he is. And let me tell you about it. Now watch what she does. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, they were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him the chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. Now look at verse 12. And this was because, and now she explains who this man is. And she says, he has an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving difficult problems are all found in this man, and his name is Daniel. I mean, that's basically how you are to share the gospel with somebody. I know a man. I know a man who can heal all of your problems, and his name is Jesus. You look at verses 11 and 12, and I read these verses, and I read how how Daniel is explained by an ungodly queen to an ungodly king. What an incredible reputation Daniel has. He has God's spirit. Look at this in verse 12. Notice three things. He's got God's spirit. He's brilliant in knowledge, and he is extraordinary in wisdom. Wow. Wouldn't you like to have people say that about you? Can I say this right here? Daniel is 70, 80 years old at this point in his life. This did not happen overnight. Scholars believe that when Daniel was taken captive at the age of 15, 16 years old, that when they left, they did not have a copy of the Old Testament to read, They didn't have a place to worship as Jewish people are to worship, and there was no Sabbath. Do you get the picture? 
Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? Personal devotion. Personal devotion. If you want to come to the end of your life and you want people to say that you're full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, you can't start now. You've got to start yesterday. And you have to pour in little by little by little by little. That's why it's so important we read God's Word. Listen, we are on the fast track in our country. We are on a fast track where we will no longer be able to have God's Word available to us. And when you and I, when we are in, when we're in prison cells, and we've been sent out on exile, and we do not have a copy of God's Word, we are going to have to go back to what we've already learned. Wow. And isn't this a great book? Isn't this great? So they call in Daniel. Now, I know you're looking at your watch. You're looking at the verse number we're on. We're on verse 12, and you're going, Pastor, we have to go to verse 31. My roast is in the oven. It's 1130, Pastor. What are you doing? Well, jump to verse 25. And everybody says, thank you, Jesus. Because they have summoned Daniel. They've called him in and says, Daniel, you come tell us what this means. We know you can do it. God's done it before. You tell us. And Daniel says, all right, king, I'm going to tell you what it says. Now, Daniel's bold here because the king could kill him. Daniel's like, I'm just going to tell you God's word. I'm just going to tell you God's word. Verse 25. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, aparson. Mene, mene, tekel, aparson. Now, the reason they called Daniel in is because nobody understood what it meant. There's only one person who could understand these words, and it was the man of God. Now, I firmly believe, I firmly believe this, that the only persons today who can correctly interpret culture and the message of God is those who read the handwritings of God. That's pretty cool by that young kid who ever made that sound. That was just perfect. It's perfect timing out of the mouth of babes. But amen? Yes! Yes! <laughs> that's, a, that's a preacher right there. Mene, mene, tekel, a parson. Verse 26, this is the interpretation, O king. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, and he's put an end to it. Verse 27, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales, and you have been found deficient. Verse 28, perez, it's part of the Aramaic word, a parson. Your kingdom has been divided and been given over to the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel boldly gives the king the words of God and then lets God take care of the rest. Because we really don't see much afterwards because actually things happen rather quickly. Verse 29, Belshazzar gives Daniel some clothes, makes him... <clears throat> 
uh, third in command of a kingdom that's about to go down in about four hours. Then look at verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, this Chaldean king, was slain. And the Babylonian kingdom is no more. Just like God said would happen. Wow. Wow. Let me make three applications from this story that I want to close with. Number one, I believe that Daniel chapter 5 teaches us that what can happen, or excuse me, that what happened to Babylon can also happen to the United States of America. Poor, ungodly leadership that rejects El Elyon, the God Most High, will lead any nation to judgment. You'll notice that in Daniel chapter 5, the main subject was Belshazzar and his irreverence and his immorality. The nation paid the price. The nation that rejects El Elyon is setting itself up for failure. All we have to do is look at the rubble of history. You look in Daniel, Babylon, destroyed, irreverent. Medes and the Persians, they're going, later on in our text, they will be destroyed, irreverent. Greece, Alexander the Great, destroyed. Rome, destroyed. Irreverence, immorality. You look in the past 100, 200 years, we see the communist empire. The great majority of them are, have been destroyed because of irreverence and immorality and rejection of the one God most high. And how we cannot but help to think of Germany under Hitler. All of these nations thought they were the greatest of the day, a superpower. So do we as the United States. And the tendency of every great nation is the same, and this came from, this is not original to me, but this is so true. The tendency of every great nation is the same. That a belief that will always be a superpower. And then you slowly push God out of the picture. You take him out of the public life. Then you forbid the mention of his name. Then you move to ridiculing those who still believe in him. And then you promote those who exalt man and downplay God. And then you reject absolutes and then you rewrite the rule book and you live by your own set of rules. And over time, a nation that does that and takes God for granted, a nation that does that, that turns away from the God Most High and turns to the idols of our own hands, and we begin to worship the things that our hands make, the Bible is clear. God will judge that nation and will remove it from being a superpower. 
And I believe we're on the doorstep. Unless we repent. Pastor, these are pretty harsh words. Yes, they are, but I believe that the finger of God has written. So shall it be. The second thing that we can learn from this chapter is this. Daniel 5 teaches us that God's word is sure. It's true. What God has said, it will happen. Context, Daniel chapter 5. Seventy years after Daniel is taken to captivity, the exact 70 years that Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied, 175 to 200 years before Daniel chapter 5 takes place. God's word is sure. It will take place. What God said is going to take place sooner or later. Days turns into months, months into years, years into decades, decades into centuries. In the end, every word of the Lord will come true. You're so awesome, whoever that is, you're so awesome. Nothing in God's word will be left unfulfilled. Belshazzar learned the hard way. We need to learn from his mistake and trust that God's word is true. And here's the last thing that we're going to be done. Daniel chapter 5 teaches us this, that God will weigh every human heart. Every person in this room, he will weigh your heart. Christian and non-Christian alike. Several times in scriptures, it tells us this, that God will examine our heart. God does not simply look at our outward um, actions, but he looks into our heart, into our motives, our thoughts, our dreams, our secrets. And here's the reality. Everything is laid bare before God's eyes. And nothing is hidden from him. This is extremely difficult to understand, and I'll be honest with you, it's quite embarrassing. Are you with me? To think the things that I've done. It would be laid bare before God. Because one day... We will all stand before God himself. And you must give an account of your life. And some people believe, and as a matter of fact, I shared the gospel with somebody just a couple of weeks ago, and they gave me this same thought. Some people believe that, that if my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, that that's going to get me into heaven. Folks, I stand before you this morning and I share this as simply as I can. That is a false belief. Your good deeds are as filthy rags 
And if you were to stand before God and you said, God, look at my good deeds. Look what I have done. God would say to you what he has said to Belshazzar when he said the Aramaic word, Telkel, which means this, you have been weighed on the scales of justice and you have been found deficient. Your works are deficient. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you were to stand before God and you'd say, God, look at my good deeds, you would stand before God and you'd realize that your sin is like a mountain that you could never climb, that you could never get over. It'd be so massive that the mountain of sin would fall upon you and crush you and you would not be able to stand. So if our good deeds cannot get us into eternity, we need something We need someone. We need someone to step on the scale of justice for us. And there is a man, and his name is Jesus. Have you trusted him today? If you have not trusted in Jesus, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, do so today. Because like Belshazzar, today could be the last day. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, I stand this morning overwhelmed. Overwhelmed as we've opened up your word. We've allowed your word to speak. And Father, young and old have heard. Father, I pray that someone somewhere would turn to you now. Repent from their sins. Turn from their wicked ways and follow you with every ounce of their being. I pray for our country, oh God, that you would forgive us. Forgive our leadership. Bring godly leadership, oh God, please. Please, God. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. Father, hear our prayers as we turn to you. In Jesus' name.